Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we are asking that you'll come into this room, that you'll violate the laws of time and space through your Holy Spirit and approach us through word and sacrament. We're asking. And we're asking in faith, knowing that you are more eager to speak to us even than we are to listen. Yet our lives depend on the word of God. Uh, so grant that our ears might be uh, leaning against the breast of heaven to hear our Father's heartbeat. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week someone shared with me a story about a new banker, young man, just been uh, elected president of the bank. And as he took his office, he reached out to the old guy who had just retired and said, can you give me some pointers? I'd love to have some, what are some of the keys to your success over the years? And the retiring banker said, well, it comes down to good decisions. Yeah, but how do you know which decisions are good decisions? He goes, well, that's a matter of experience. <laughs> well, how do you get the experience? He goes, making bad decisions. We're in this three-week conversation now about decisions, good decisions, bad decisions, uh, hard decisions. And this week I want to focus on hard decisions, the hard ones. You've heard of King Solomon, perhaps, a big figure in the Old Testament. He was famous for his ability to make hard decisions. And perhaps none of them was harder than the day that two mothers came to him with a single child. And I want to invite you to turn over in your Bibles as I read that story. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16, or page 267 of the Pew Bible. It's a little bit longer today, so I'll read on our behalf. But I would invite you to turn there so that you can follow along and keep the book open as we talk about this wonderful but uh, sometimes challenging text. This is 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 16 to 28. And uh, when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen closely. We're hearing God's holy word. Later, two women who were prostitutes came to King Solomon and stood before him. The one woman said, please, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. We were together. There was no one else with us in the house. Only the two of us were in the house. Then this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your servant slept. She laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, I saw that he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, clearly... It was not the son I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living son is mine and the dead son is yours. The first said, No, the dead son is yours and the living son is mine. So they argued before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive and your son is dead. While the other says, not so, your son is dead and my son is the living one. So the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living boy in two and then give half to the one and half to the other. 
But the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because compassion for her son burned within her, please, my Lord, give her the living boy. Certainly do not kill him. The other said, it shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide it. Then the king responded, give the first woman the living boy. Do not kill him. She is his mother. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to execute justice. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. God gave Solomon the ability to make hard decisions. Right? That's what we see in that text. And this is a hard one. It's the facts of the case make it hard. It reads to me a little bit like a modern murder mystery, doesn't it? One baby, two mothers, both saying exactly the same thing. A death in the night, no witnesses. We know someone's lying, but who? And who should get the child? It's a hard one just not because of the facts of the case, but also because the tragedy of the situation that these two women find themselves in. We read this with sympathy. We know the scholars tell us that the ancient Near Eastern prost prostitute was invariably a slave or uh, a woman with no family, just destitute and no prospect of marrying. So they were both already in a very challenging situation. And to them, each of them, this child was not just a beloved family member, but also a future and a hope. They've suffered loss on loss when they come to this moment. And it's kind of touching that the king, King Solomon, would take, even take the case to begin with. It, it, we get a sense of his compassion for these two women. But it's a hard, hard decision. And Solomon admits the difficulty right away. His first comment, verse 23, he seems to be saying essentially, golly, I mean, they're both saying exactly the same thing. This is a really hard decision. Now, there comes a time when all of us will face hard decisions. Should I quit the job? Should I go to grad school? Should I break up? Should I spend the money? Should I adopt? Should I move? Hard decisions. Like, for example, marriage. I was 24 years old when I got married. Can you believe that? 24 years old. What did I know about myself, let alone about life? And yet here I'm deciding to make a commitment that will change my life for the rest of my life and another really decent person for the rest of her life as well. So as I was thinking about hard decisions, I was thinking, how do you make the decision to commit your life to another human being? Well, when Ann and I had been dating a few months, we both got independently invited to a Super Bowl party in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, the house was packed with college students, and Ann and I, at halftime, were having a conversation under the dining room table. Now, I have no idea how we got under the dining room table. I, probably there was a dog or a cat involved, or we just wanted privacy, but we were having a conversation. And this was the year that the uh, San Francisco 49ers were playing the Cincinnati Bengals. I grew up in San Francisco. She grew up in Cincinnati. And you got to know, if you know anything about Cincinnati, they love their sports. And so here we are, uh, halftime. It's the first time actually in history that Super Bowl was tied going into halftime. So the score is 3-3. 
And uh, I decided to pop the big question. I mean, not the marriage question. I wasn't ready for that. But, you know, would you bet on the outcome question? And so I, uh, so I said this. I tell, I tell you what. If San Francisco wins, they were the underdogs. If San Francisco wins, then you have to come with me this summer to New Jersey and work with college students. Now, she had other plans. She was doing missionary work in the Soviet Union, studying Russia. She was going to go there for the summer. Uh, but she knew this is my team. Bengals are heavily favored. Uh, so she, she made the bet. Well, predictably, the Bengals came out of the locker room and uh, took control of the game, and they were ahead for the rest of the game until the last few minutes of the game when the 49ers find themselves on the eight-yard line, uh, and Joe Montana did what only Joe Montana could do, marched up the field, and with 34 seconds left, scored a touchdown. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. I tell you this story because... <laughs> I'm not, not as a model for you in making hard decisions, but over the years, Ann and I have had to make countless hard decisions. And from that point forward, we have never had the sense that we make a hard decision alone. We've always had the sense that it's not just uh, her and me or not just us and a problem, but there was always a sacred companion at the crossroads with us in the decision and that he's faithful. And that he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he loves us better than we love ourselves. And he has a plan for us that's a good plan for our welfare and flourishing. And so we've learned to make hard decisions in the presence of this sacred companion. Now I think this is what the Lord has taught Solomon how to do. Solomon loves the Lord, you'll read in verse 3 if you just let your eye go up the page. Now, the Bible gives us a model for making decisions with God in this divine companion. And I just want to review. We discovered it last week in Jeremiah 6, 16. Let's look again at that passage. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. That's Jeremiah 6, 16. Notice the verbs. The model is in the verbs. Stand, look, ask, and walk. Slaw. As I said, I have no idea what that means. But that's what, those are the verbs. Slaw. Now, Jeremiah won't say this for another 300 years, but Solomon already seems to be demonstrating this model. And so just notice for a second. To stand at the crossroad is to slow down enough to recognize you have a decision to make. You can have agency here. And in fact, Solomon does stand. He stands at the Ark of the Covenant in worship just before this, and then he stands with these two women, and there's clearly a decision to be made. He stands. And then he looks. To look along the crossroad is to think out the possibilities of the different choices that you can make, to look at the facts, to use your brain. And we see Solomon doing this here. He, he repeats the facts of the case back to these women. He's clearly looking. And he also even seems to find a way to look into the hearts of these two women. So he looks. And then thirdly, it's to ask. To ask for the ancient paths is to ask for the scriptures, to read the Bible, but to do it with the sacred companion, to be in conversation. We know that this is part of Solomon's life because we're told in verse 3 at the beginning of the chapter that Solomon walks in the statutes of his father David. That, those are the scriptures. 
And rather famously, you may know that Solomon asks for wisdom of the Lord, get this great gift. So he's asking. And then to walk. To walk is to put what you're learning into practice. Bring me a sword, he says. Notice the risk. He's, starting to, he's taking a risk here with this one. I mean, this is kind of scary. And then he says, give this one the living uh, boy. And there's his decision. So stand, look, ask, and walk. It's how you make a good decision. Now, today I want to focus on how to make a hard decision. But before we get to that, uh, push a little deeper, let's first ask ourselves a question. Ask this with me. What does it mean to you that God has wisdom for your decisions? Would you just think about whatever crossroads you might be at in your life and then think, what does it mean to you that God has wisdom for your decision? Do you know that the Bible, this book, is filled with what many people call wisdom literature from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In fact, there are whole books of the Bible that are just about wisdom. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs. Proverbs, scholars call prudential wisdom which means practical saying for young adults, prudential wisdom. Ecclesiastes and Job are speculative wisdom, which means exploring the meaning of things like life and suffering. Song of Songs explores the meaning of love and romance. It's a a love song. The thing that's important to keep in mind when you're reading wisdom literature is that it's always very context sensitive. It's, it's, it's different from other parts of the Bible. It's unlike the great imperatives of the law or the great promises of the gospel. The wisdom literature doesn't make a universal claim, thus saith the Lord. No, instead it really gives us generalizations, you know, a stitch in time or a bird in the hand. So they're not always true in every situation. That's why the wisdom uh, sayings can sometimes even contradict each other. Even back to back, like in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Take, this is kind of interesting. You have two Proverbs that contradict each other right next to each other. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you'll be a fool yourself. And then the very next verse says, Answer fools according to their folly, or they'll be wise in their own eyes. See that? You're like, what? Just, by the way, the Jews of the first century were so troubled by this apparent contradiction that some wanted to pull Proverbs out of the Bible. But this is to misunderstand the genre. No, wisdom literature doesn't give us promises or predictions. They're principles, general principles. And part of wisdom is knowing how and why to apply these principles to the different situations that we face. Last week I mentioned a great Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman. And he's written a nice book about wisdom that I I shared with you last week. He talks about, in this book, he talks about his grandmother. His grandmother understood this way of applying wisdom to context-sensitive situations. He says, like Thanksgiving, we come to my grandmother's house, big family is gathered there. And and she'd say, uh, uh, too many cooks spoils the broth. Which is her way of saying what? Y'all get out of the kitchen. And then we'd eat this great feast and wonderful Thanksgiving meal. And she'd sit at the table and she'd say, many hands make light work. Which means what? Y'all get back in the kitchen. Right? So different context, different application of wisdom. Wisdom, Proverbs 120 says, cries out in the street. Wisdom calls out to you at a crossroads. 
And God has wisdom for you at your crossroad. So I guess what I'm saying here is it's really good to be familiar with the Bible's teaching on wisdom uh, to know how to apply these things. In fact, one of the things I learned from my wife is there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. and There are 31 days in most months. So it's a great thing to do is like read the chapter per day of the week. So if you haven't ever done that or haven't done it recently, today is July 2nd. You might just start with Proverbs uh, chapter 2 and you can keep working through the Proverbs. You'll have them read uh, by the end of July. What does it mean to you that God has wisdom for your decisions? Okay, now let's press a little further into the hard decisions. Because here's my contention that Solomon finds wisdom for the hard decisions in the heart. The heart. Let's talk about the heart. This is where the sword comes in. Remember Solomon says, bring me a sword. Why? Because the facts on the surface are too hard and he needs to push beneath the surface and get at the heart. He needs to somehow look at these two women's hearts. And when he says divide the living boy, they both show up. Both of their hearts are exposed. Divide the living boy. We read in verse 26, the true mother steps forward and and says compassion for her son burned within her. Ah, now we see compassion emerging in one heart. And look, there's also the disfiguring hatred that comes from loss. So tragic. This one woman uh, who's lost her son is so angry and bitter that she would actually consider watching a healthy living baby cut in two. She said, divide it. Not even him, but divide it. Notice the dehumanization of that. That's what's in her heart. And then this other woman, she, she... She has compassion burning in her heart. The true mother steps forward, sacrificing her life for the life of this child. And also maybe even for the antagonizing other mother. She's giving her child and her hope to this other mother. That is true compassion. And now Solomon, through his little ruse, exposes it, reveals it for all to see. So you see what I'm saying? he He had to look at the heart to make the hard decision. But it's not only, there's something even more fascinating. I just discovered this this week. Follow me here a second time. Solomon doesn't only look at their hearts. He looks at his heart as well. Look at verse 9. God gave Solomon a listening heart. Listening heart. You remember the story. God appears to young Solomon in a dream. He's new king. And God says to him, ask me for something. Whatever you want. I've never heard that before. But if you ever do, here's the right answer. Ask for wisdom. Solomon says in verse 9, give your servant, meaning himself, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. I want the ability to make hard decisions. Give me an understanding mind. Now the Hebrew there literally says listening heart, hearing heart. The Hebrew word there is the word that's in the famous Jewish creed, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel. That's the word Shema. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. It means listen, Israel. Hear, Israel. Obey, Israel. And here Solomon says, give me a listening heart. I want to have a hearing heart. I want to have an obedient heart. I love this about Solomon. And so does the Lord. Because Solomon asked for this, the Lord says, I'm not going to give you 
You, know, you didn't ask for long life or riches or power like anybody else would. If you asked for this listening heart, I'm going to give you that and I'm going to give you the other things as well. So the point for us is the hard decisions take a listening heart. We're required to listen to the hearts of others and we're required to listen to the heart of God. Henry Nouwen writes this. I love this. I put it on the screen. You can take a picture if you want to reflect on it later. Henry Nouwen says, I have to kneel before the Father, put my ear against his chest and listen without interruption to the heartbeat of God. He writes, I know now that I have to speak from eternity into time, from the lasting joy into the passing realities of our short existence on, the, on this world, from the house of love into the houses of fear, from God's abode into the dwellings of human beings. And he's reflecting, Henry Nouwen is reflecting on the, a painting by Rembrandt of the prodigal son coming back to the father. And if you've seen that painting, the young man's, head is on the breast of the father as the father welcomes the prodigal back in and there he is kneeling before the father ear against the father's chest listening for the heartbeat of God and Henry now goes I want that listening heart that's what our world needs see when you face a hard decision it helps to consider motivations motivations what's in the heart so if you're thinking about a hard decision ask yourself why why would I quit why would I break up why would I adopt etc what's my motivation to give it go back to my own example of this Super Bowl <laughs> proposal it, I didn't, wasn't really thinking about it then but now I realized two years earlier what prepared me for that moment was I was looking at my own heart as I was thinking about my life and future. I was kind of on cruise control through my educational experience. You know, go to college, do well, get a job, get a house, get married, blah, 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 rest of your life. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And Jesus kind of stopped me in my tracks and going, is that all, is that all you got? Is that all your life is worth? And then I realized he's got me on this adventure. And so he's asking all these questions about my motivation. Just coming off a breakup uh, with a long-term relationship. And I was feeling very lonely. And I had to get to the place where I, I said, Jesus, I surrender my relationships to you. And I was feeling a call to work with the poor and to do so overseas at the time. And, and so I had to get to the place where I, I wrestled, Lord, if you would call me to be single for the rest of my life, would I say yes to that? And I feel like what he was saying to me is, George, I'm enough, whether you're single or married. And what I realized looking back on that is, if I didn't have enough of Jesus to be able to manage my singleness, I wouldn't have enough of Jesus in order to be ready to get married. Very, very important time in my life in terms of my heart. And so he was preparing me uh, to meet Anne and to make a lifelong commitment to her that way. So motivations. Let me give you another example, end-of-life decisions. I have walked with a lot of people who are prolonging the death, the dying process of a loved one, not because of the loved one, but because of themselves. It's hard to let someone we love go. I can think of one daughter who was really struggling to let her mother die. And as I listened to her process, I was listening for her motivations. And ironically, it wasn't that she felt particularly close to her mother. It's that she had over her whole life 
been kind of distant and had a hard relationship with her mother. And now she was just filled with regret and guilt. And she felt like if my mom dies right now, I'll be locked in a state of regret and guilt for the rest of my life. And just, she just, I can't let her go. As we prayed and talked about that, I realized there's an opportunity for the good news of the gospel here. Because we know what to do with our regret and guilt. Jesus says, you give it to me. Let's take it to the cross. Let's leave it behind. You are forgiven. And as she heard that word from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, she began to find the motivation, a new motivation to release her mother. Let me give you another example. Parenting. Some of us are parents. Proverbs 19.18 says this. Discipline your child while there is hope. Do not set your heart on their destruction. And you go, well, well, who would want destruction for their child? But say this, one of the hardest decisions a parent ever has to make is to allow the child to experience the consequences of their own bad decisions. That's hard. It's hard for a parent. It's hard for a grandparent. But when we do that, we're not actually doing what's good for the child. In fact, oftentimes we're doing what's good for us. Explore your motives. Oftentimes, as a parent, we have sought the fulfillment of our own needs for love in our child. And we've used them as an instrument for our own fulfillment. We run so hard and fast through our busy lives, we don't actually have friends to meet our needs, adult peer friends, and so we look to our children and how painful that is for them to have to bear the weight of that. You know, your child will have many friends through their life. They're only gonna have two parents, or maybe even one, or one grandparent. They need you to be that parent. But as long as you are so hungry for love and intimacy, there's a real risk that you'll try to get that from your child rather than taking it to Jesus and allow Jesus to pour into your life the abundance of love that he promises his followers. So consider your motives. Consider your motivations. Look at your heart and listen to the heart of God. What are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Because here's the point. Hard decisions come from hearing the heart of God. I think this is the teaching of the text. I want to say as I read this text and I I think about these two women, in the end, I recognize this compassion that shows up burning in the heart of the one woman. That mother, when the text says, interrupts the flow of the grammar because compassion was burning in her heart. She has compassion for her child. She has compassion for her adversary, who he was making bad decisions right in front of her, yet she has compassion for her. And, and, and I, I, see, I see that and I go, I recognize that compassion. Where have I seen that somewhere? It's the heart of God. This word compassion or mercy is one of the words that's used so often to describe the heart of God. It's actually the Hebrew word for womb, ironically. This deep place, a motherly attachment. The Lord will later say to Jerusalem, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget. He said, maybe some mothers may. Yet I will not forget, the Lord says. I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand. Your walls, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, your walls are continually before me. You're my child, Jerusalem. I'm not going to let you go. This is the heart of God. You make bad decisions. I am still your heavenly parent. And this is the heart that God makes known in Jesus. 
is it not? This is a God who sacrifices himself to give us life. This is a God with nail print hands. I've inscribed you on the palms of my hand. This is God's compassion. You know, you and I make a lot of good decisions in life, but we make plenty of bad ones too. And God's saying, I I am not going to let you go. You can't make a decision that will get me off your tail. I love you too much. I will not forget you. There is compassion for you that burns within me. You're inscribed in the palms of my hands. And you know where we see that heart come out? The cross. The cross is the sword. The cross is nothing if not a sword, a dagger. And it's the the, the blade that reveals God's heart. So when you and I hear the message of the cross, you and I hear God's heart. It's exposed by the cross. When you hear God's heart, it reveals your motivations and it transforms them. The cross tells you that the path that you were on, it tells you where it will go if you let yourself be led by your dark motivations. And then the cross gives us new motivations. The cross tells you how much you're loved and you respond in love. The cross tells you that you're forgiven and you respond with gratitude. The cross tells you that you're secure and now you're in a place where you can afford to take risks. The cross tells you your old life is gone, your new life has come, a whole new life. New motivations. So maybe this is why St. Paul calls the cross the wisdom of God. Foolishness to everybody else, but the wisdom of God. Because the hard decisions come from hearing the heart of God. Isn't it interesting how these two mothers point to the cross? That moment in history, at the center of history, where God switched his son for us in the night. I mean, this is the hardest of all decisions, and our Lord made it for us. In the dark when our adversary and an accuser slashed out with a sword. In a wicked fury of jealous rage, God's compassion burned within. God switched the babies. God took your place, my place. He laid down in our death. The Son of God lay beneath the blow of every bad decision you will ever make. He who knew no sin became sin, St. Paul would write, for our sake. So that on the third day, the womb, the tomb of creation would give birth. And it would not just be Jesus who rises, but all who place faith in him. That's the invitation. Have you heard of the grand exchange? Have you heard the cross speaking to you? Of your bad decisions, yes, but of his pardon, especially of his sacrifice and of his gracious gift of life. Friend, if you'd like to say yes to Jesus, come today and speak with our prayer team. They'll be down front after the service. Just come and take a couple minutes and say, I'd like to say yes to Jesus. He will change your life. He will give you eternal life. He will put you into a new spiritual family and give you an adventure for the rest of your life. You can come down front after the service or you can come to upc.org slash Jesus. And meet the one who sacrificed himself to give you life. Who would you rather meet today? Come, wisdom says. Come, the cross says. Come, the heart of God says. Come to the one who stands at the crossroads. The one who is greater than Solomon. Your elder brother who will one day look at you and say to the angels in glory, 
take this one and give to my father this living child. Would you pray with me? Oh, what grace. Oh, what power. Oh, what love. What wisdom would take a sinner like me, would take us prodigals into your arm and and say, you are mine. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the beauty and the mystery of this story in which we live, for the gospel. We do believe. Help us in our unbelief. Release into us the newness of our life in Jesus Christ. As we gather around this table, we come to a negotiating table where you say, my life for yours. Come to this table and die. But come to this table and live and feast on my body and my blood that I might touch you and transform you and claim you as my own. So now we pray that your Holy Spirit would set aside these common elements, dedicate them to a sacred purpose, to to make us one with our Savior Jesus Christ and to make us one with one another, that his purposes might have a body, a living body, the church, your people in the world today. We pray in Christ's name, amen.